Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we're joined by producer, former studio executive, author, and CEO of Threshold Entertainment Group, Larry Kazanoff, whose fascinating new book is entitled A Touch of Madness, How to Be More Innovative in Work and Life by Being a Little Crazy. In these difficult times, it's one of the most optimistic books I've read in ages and proves to be quite a guide for those trying to make it in our ever more challenging business. Based on Larry's extensive experience in producing major films in Hollywood, including Platoon, Dirty Dancing, T2, and the amazingly successful Mortal Kombat film series. Welcome, Larry. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. You know, here we are in um, 2023. The business seems more fraught than ever. There's a lot of craziness going on. We're in a very, very damaging strike. Um, the business for writers and actors seems to be changing before our eyes. Um, how do you be? How how are you optimistic about this business? Because your book, which we'll discuss later, seems very optimistic. I think that it's always a crazy time in the world and in our, our business. And I think you have to find opportunity and confusion because there's always opportunity and confusion. I am incredibly bullish on the movie business because, frankly, I think there's only two problems in the movie business in the long run, not in the short run, the strikes and everything. In the long run, there's two problems. There's been two problems the last few years. One is we've operated in a very political correct environment, and it's simply hard to make art in a political correct environment. It happened in the 50s and early 60s. It happened in the late 20s. It happened after the Renaissance when they covered up Botticelli's. It always happens. And the second thing is movies cost too much money. And, and I say that, you know, that I, I could be talking against myself. They just cost a bit too much money. Not a ton too much money. That's it. And there are lots of ways to make them cost less money. And so that's it. So we've got these two issues today. If you take away those two issues, everything's great. And everything will be great again soon. It's just, and, and this has all happened before. Read history. This all happened before. It's just we tend to overblow it and think, oh, my God, the earth, the sky is falling in. It's not. The streamers will change, in my opinion, will change how they how they pay soon because now they're paying for movies. And they'll go back to a windowing uh, a period where they say, you know what, rather than spending my money for the whole movie, let me pay you X percent for a year, just like theatrical did and home video did and paid cable did. It, it'll go back. It'll change. And then there'll be more profits. So I, I think this whole thing, this doom and gloom is overblown. Look at this summer. Look at these two movies that made eight gazillion dollars because they're great. The audience wants the new and the different. That's what my book is about. They want the new and the different. And the tried and the true doesn't work. And so that's what you have to do. And my, the whole premise of my book is to swim against the new and the different because the current of the river of life will always pull you that way. You got to be a little crazy because the crazy will get you creative and the audience wants creative. So that's it. So I'm incredibly bullish because I think there's a great opportunity here. So if you had the if you had uh, the head of Marvel sitting across from you at a lunch table, what would you tell him? Because his company has been producing, for my sense, the same movie over and over again for 10 years and a fabulously successful company. They've made billions. Uh, I am not 22 anymore, so I'm not really their target audience. But uh, do you think that model of relying on franchise pictures is really on the way out or will they continue? 
First of all, the head of Marvel doesn't need me to tell them anything because they've done a great job. But second of all, um, no, of course it works. It's they're just a little too expensive. They've just gotten a little too expensive. You know, you hear X movie tanked. It only made $535 million or whatever it is. That's great. It just, these movies just cost a little too much money. And there are ways of making them cost less money. Here, Here's the, the craziness that's going on. So a lot of the issues in the strike is the, the unions don't want AI. But you know what the strike is going to force everyone to do? Use more AI. And you know what using more AI is going to do? It's going to lower the cost of movies, which is going to give you more profits, which will be good for the unions. <laughs> so so it, it's just it's just how do we make a $300 million movie for $225 million movie? You and I just had a talk about, we won't say the movie, we just had to talk about a movie. And I suggested to you, there's a way to make this a movie equally as good for half the price. That's what we just got to do. It's just the price has got too expensive. People are going to the movies to have a to have a pro a movie that makes five hundred million dollars at the box office. That shouldn't be a failure. That movie's just too expensive. No, it's very true. And I, I, I uh, one of the movies you're referring to was the latest Indiana Jones movie, which I found to be tremendously entertaining. Entertaining and. Uh, yes, it was very expensive, but it, they put everything on the screen. I thought it was terrific, but you're right. It was too expensive. On the AI question, I, I, I found something interesting. Somebody mentioned this the other day, that it's the studios, the streamers, the networks, and the writers are not that far apart. In fact, they were saying that the studios are very concerned about owning IP and that uh, they're not necessarily going to embrace AI uh, so freely because who owns that material? How do we know that the AR computer wasn't copying a Woody Allen movie or copying an Albert Brooks comedy or copying some other one of your movies? So they, they're keen about ownership. So before they would accept a project, they would want to make sure who owns it. And that, of course, is in the province of writers. So I'm not sure the AI thing is as big a problem as they say. Well, the AI copyright issues, I think, a little bit different you 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 can't copyright something ai has made but what you can do is if you own the underlying copyright of the characters it's making about you you still own the copyright of that movie but th this thing is overblown in terms of the movie business you know i i give a speech sometimes called ai there's a lot of opportunity before the machines take over so in the long run i, I don't know what's going to happen but in our business it's great but we're, we're blowing this out of proportion. I mean, you know, when we did uh, Terminator 2, it was the first extensive use of morphing in a movie. And it, it helped launch the digital the, the digital age, I think. And I, I made the first ever moving 3D Steadicam shot in a theme park ride I did for Star Trek. Same thing, it helped, it helped with, um, you know, pushing 3D movies for a while. These are all great innovations. AI is just another way to innovate and more efficiently and cheaply make effects. Nothing changes. I mean, this has happened all the time. George Lucas invented the motion control camera. These are all great steps forward. So in the movie business, I'm not qualified to talk about the, the sociological effect on the whole world, but in the movie business, AI is great. We should embrace it. It lets us do things better, faster, and cheaper, which is exactly what we need if you buy my premise that the only problem we really have is that movies are too expensive. Sure. We're, we're blowing out of proportion. You're not going to sit down with a computer and say, hey, Hal 2023, can you make me a new movie? But you're going to say, well, you know what? When we did this podcast, we said the word um too much. Let's just scrub it of um so we don't have to reshoot it. So what? That's great. So let's let's go back in history a little bit. Let's go back to your youth. Um, <laughs> we, we, Why my youth is not here? <laughs> <laughs> we, we celebrate 
all forms of movies on this show. And um, I always ask the guests to remember their first experiences going to the movies. And I always ask the question, were you a movie-going family in those days? Yeah, when I was a little kid, my dad always loved the movie business. My dad took me to see Thunderball, James Bond movie. And when I left, I said, okay, I want to be James Bond. But well, who's that guy that said, you know, Cubby Broccoli presents? The pro what, what does this guy, the producer, do? And my father explained it. That was it. I From then on, I was like seven. From then on, I wanted to be a movie producer. That was it. I'm done. And I've never changed. It's funny you should mention, I've written six books on the James Bond movies, including the formal and really? Encyclopedia. I've been studying Bond films since the seventies, oh, and I, I interviewed wow. Cubby. I interviewed Kevin McClory. Produced Thunderball. Oh, wow. Thunderball's a, a a seminal film for me because I was in a drive-in seeing that as a kid, and uh, I think my life changed also when I saw Thunderball, which was that yeah, the Bond fever. Oh yeah, yeah. it just it, that was that was. I've never. I haven't changed since. I said I'm going to be. I used to walk around as a little kid saying I'm going to Hollywood and be a movie producer when I grow up. Well, you know, we're talking tonight a little bit about the changing technology and advancements and innovation and being bold. Uh, when home video first came in and people could actually own a movie on a video cassette, you found yourself running Vestron Video, one of the biggest video companies in the world. Can you talk a little bit how you fell into that job? Because uh, you were at the epicenter of a new form of entertainment, which is, allowed people to own movies. Sure. So I, I, as I said, I wanted to do this since I was a little kid and I, I planned every, I tried every school, every internship I could get to figure out how to get into the movie business. And I got very lucky and right out of grad school, I got a job running production of Vestron Pictures and Vestron Video, which was like the Netflix of the day because it was like another content gold rush. Like when home video started there, all of a sudden video stores popped up. They had room for 20,000 movies. They didn't have anything and they needed movies. So my job was to make 80 movies a year, deliver 80 movies a year, eight zero to the company. Buy them, make them, co-produce them. Don't lose money, kid, or you got a big problem. And I could, it was great. And but so we made low budget horror movies, low budget action movies, rom coms. And then one day we got a script for this movie called Platoon. And Platoon was not the kind of movie we made. It wasn't a high, you know, concept genre movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Behind me, um, it wasn't a, a genre movie. And um, I wanted to make it. And my boss, who was a great guy, said, you're crazy. It's not the kind of movie we make. Platoon was a story about the Vietnam War and the effect it had on the kids who were in it. The people attached to it became stars, but they weren't stars. But I fought. And my boss, a great guy, a destructive entrepreneur. And he said, listen, you're the head of production. Your decision. You can do it. But see, there's always a but. But if it fails, you're fired. And he fired people all the time. What do you want to do? And I thought, well, I didn't get into the movie business to play it safe, so I greenlit Platoon. When I saw the movie uh, for the first time, I would, you know, when they showed it to me, I'm the only person to giggle their way through the first screening of Platoon, not because it wasn't great, but because it was so good. I was going, oh my God, I'm not going to get fired. I'm not going to get fired. <laughs> and it was so good, it won Best Picture that year at the Academy Awards. Well, let, let me ask you, you, let me ask you one quick question. Vestron as a company. I call it a home video company, but you were obviously also involved in theatrical distribution as well. Oh yeah, 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 we, we, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we became a theatrical distributor, but before that, we bought and co-financed movies. We co-financed Platoon in exchange for home video rights and certain other rights, but we, then we get a guarantee release. I think uh, Orion released. If I'm correct, Orion released it. Right. And, anyway, but the the point is when I, I ran into 
Oliver, the director, a few months later in New York at a bar, and he bought me a drink and he said, you know, kid, I always liked you. You have a touch of the madness. And I thought, a touch of the madness? A little crazy. Is he calling me crazy? Am I crazy? And then I thought, well, my boss is crazy to give a 25-year-old kid the responsibility of running an 80-picture film slate. I thought Oliver's got a touch of the madness for insisting on making a Vietnam movie that no one ever made. And I have a touch of the madness by betting my great job on it. And then that occurred to me at that moment, you know what? This is exactly what we need. This is what you need to make great movies. You need that madness. You need that crazy to swim away from that current, which is always going to pull you to the middle because the audience wants new and different. That's why Platoon worked. It was a brilliant movie, but no one had ever approached Vietnam from the point of view of the, not the violence so much, but the effect it had on the kids. And so that became my touchstone. And I've done that ever since. And it's how I cast movies. It's how I find people. It's how I buy art. It's how I find scripts. I look for a touch of the madness. And I believe if you cultivate it in yourself and embrace your madness, we're always told, no, you can't be creative. That cra- It's that crazy idea in the back of your mind that your wife, husband, parents, kids, whatever will kill you for. That's the one you should do. And that's what I've done ever since that time. Well, it's ironic that Platoon was you know, a watershed movie for you because the Vietnam war genre seems all about craziness. You know, you talk about Full Metal Jacket, you talk about Apocalypse Now, you talk about The Deer Hunter. The common denominator between all these films is there's some crazy stuff going on. These filmmakers seem completely nuts. Well, I think Oliver was brilliant. I think what he did was make a brilliant film. It just that that what was nuts is that who the hell is going to buy that? You know, we were making, you know, I concept rom-coms and and horror movies and stuff. And that's, that's, you know, the family would, you know, watch the movie theatrically, hopefully, and then go to the home video store, which was new and get a home video and popcorn and yay, what fun on Saturday night. And it was platoon, but it was different. The approach was different. The act, the actors were great, but none of the actors were well-known. That movie, the way you were buying movies shouldn't have worked. That's what was crazy about it. No, I, I interviewed Oliver Stone for one of my books on combat films, and he, I think the whole thing about Platoon that works is it's basically autobiographical. I'm Charlie Sheen is basically playing Oliver Stone, and I think the the realism. I, I think that you know maybe I was too quick in referring to the craziness of the other filmmakers, but those filmmakers, I mean, Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, uh, Deer Hunter, are are not uh, war films per se. They are war films, but they're not based so much on things that really happened. And Platoon was re- the first Vietnam War movie I felt that really got into the jungle with the guys. That's exactly right. You know, the tagline was the first casualty of war is innocence. It was really about, that's what struck me about the movie. It was about these kids and what they felt and what happened to them. You know, for years, we would get letters after Platoon from Vietnam vets saying, now I can finally show my family what it was like. Right. I never even anticipated that. I just, I, you know, and, and so, but the idea of taking the chance and letting us take the chance, that's what was, that's what was the touch of the madness. Now you can't see Jennifer Gray and Patrick Swayze, unfortunately <laughs> in this poster, <laughs> but another film, <laughs> perhaps maybe the most famous movie that Vestron d- distributed was a was a true sleeper hit called Dirty Dancing. Can you talk about a little bit about how that came to you? So so yeah, but let me tell you a story about Dirty Dancing because it's really interesting. So so Dirty Dancing 
uh, came to the studio, was in turnaround from another studio, meaning they had started and stopped it. And it wasn't going so great. And and the, the guys who ran Vestern lured into the company somehow a, a musical and producing genius named Jimmy Einer. And Jimmy um, lured also in a guy, you know very well, a, a music supervisor composing genius named Michael Loy. And Jimmy and Michael, blah, blah, blah. They're the ones who, I mean, lots of people are responsible for that, but they're the geniuses really behind the success, in my opinion, as the head of production of Dirty Dancing. And again, one of the things I suggest that you need to touch the madness for is when you get your great creative idea, you've got to hold on with a zeal that's unbelievable. So here's a good example of how Dirty Dancing was made. When they got to the movie, the song Time of My Life was not the song you hear now. It was a high falsetto disco song. And Jimmy and Michael wanted to change it. So they 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 redid it. They, they got Bill Medley to re-sing it. And they sent out the new version of the song, the, the lower, slower song to everybody. The management company of the talent, the director, record company, everyone hated it. Gave Jimmy and Michael tons of notes. You got to change it. Can you make these notes? Can you make that note? Jimmy and Michael said, sure, no problem. No problem. A few weeks later, they sent out version two and they said, listen, here's version two. And we sent it to some radio stations and they seemed to really like it. They got notes back. Thank you so much. This new version is fantastic. Thanks for making the changes. So the question is, what genius move did Jimmy and Michael do creatively between version one and version two? What did they change? And here's what they changed. Nothing. They didn't change a thing. They just wrote version two. They changed the label and they doubled down. They sent it to radio stations because radio stations helped promote in those days. They promoted albums. And if they were wrong, they would have killed everything. But they knew what they had and they didn't change a thing. And everyone thought they did because radio stations liked it. It was their touch of the madness, their, 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 their almost crazy zeal belief in what they had that turned that, that song, which won Grammy of the Year for Best Song and won Best... Uh, a song of the year at the Academy Awards, it was that kind of belief that turned Dirty Dancing around. So again, Dirty Dancing, you could look and say that shouldn't have worked. I mean, it's a dance movie with in the Catskills in the 60s and these guys were not that famous yet. That's what it takes. It takes that kind of a zeal to hold on to your creative ideas when everyone is telling you, which they always will, as you know from your experience, they'll always tell you it's no good. Don't listen. Be like Jimmy and Michael. And when you <laughs> don't make the changes, if you believe in it. Well, I, I love the fact in your book is that you're telling people don't listen because as a yeah. filmmaker, you everybody has an opinion, and more often than not, the people who are not heavily in the business will say you're making a big mistake. This makes no sense, and I find that uh, uh, it's very important to listen to your own drummer and not worry about everybody because nobody, no, no film is going to say uh, no, in, in you know. Let me let me rephrase this. Nobody's ever going to like everything you do. There are going to people who are going to hate it, and it, you just can't listen to those people because you just. I mean, did Van Gogh listen to people telling him what to paint? Come on, Van Gogh never saw a painting in his whole life. Would it have been good if he stopped painting? You know, nothing great happens without taking a chance. You got to take a chance. That you cannot no. play it. That's what I learned from Platoon. You can't. You can't play it safe here. You can't not take a chance. So you should be in another business. And it's, by the way, it's not just in our business. I mean, in any business you're in, whether you're in product development for software or whatever, it's that notion of how can I embrace that slight crazy side of me to take the chance to, to believe in something and, and to never, ever, ever let go. I've only been to the Oscars once and it happened to be the night to tune one best picture. Oh, I hope you go. were there. I actually wasn't. I was on a set of another movie, but well, really? <laughs> we were making 
movies that Vest in those days. I mean, 80 movies, yeah, we just always on some different. It was a blast, by the way. But um, no, I, we were what, just always What eventually, traveling. excuse me, what eventually happened to Vestron? Because like a lot of big successful companies, something just ended the run. Was it you leaving or was oh, it? Oh, no, no. It's a fascinating story. So so as the company grew and grew and grew, it went public and it did well. And then the company had no debt, but it borrowed a bunch of money to make more movies. And halfway through the production slate, the bank uh, just changed their mind and pulled the line of credit. And they had no they had no legal right. It was later ruled to do that. And the company went into chapter 11. I stayed with Austin, the CEO to and the chairman to um to finish the movies that we finished and, and sell them off. But then Austin liquidated, you know, everyone got paid, liquidated everything. And he kept the lawsuit and he, he, he sued the bank for a, a number of years. And he eventually won a judgment. The line of credit was $100 million. He won $100 million. The oh court God. ruled that the the court ruled that the bank had no right to do that. They had no material changes. And and they said, and then the, the judge sort of ordered them to settle. And Austin walked away with $100 million. But walk away. Austin kept with a zeal, you know, he personally using his own money, which is not cheap, to sue that bank saying, I didn't do anything wrong. They owe me the money. And he won. That's a touch of the madness. You uh, hooked up with James Cameron. And I believe you were head of his company, Lightstorm. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, I was president of Lightstorm. Tell us a little bit how you met Cameron. I met uh, Jim because I was making two movies at Vestron. My last two movies, one, Catherine Bigelow, who became his wife at one point, uh, directed. And one was with Stan Winston, who was a great effects guy, who was directing a movie for us, but who uh, did all the effects on um, the practical effects on uh, Terminator. And Jim and uh, and 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 though and and Stan and Catherine introduced me to Jim, who was just starting a company as I was leaving Vestron. And I I loved Vestron; it was an incredible experience, six years, eighty movies a year. But I, it was time to go make bigger movies. And and Jim, we were just Jim was just had just written Terminator Two, and it was an incredibly exciting time. And it was it was, uh, and and you know what was interesting? I was happy to learn that from all those low budget movies because it was such a hands on experience. I knew way more about production than I thought I did. Well, the thing that blew everybody away with T2 was that morphing technology where Robert Patrick's character just walked through walls in that that liquid silver way. It was it's a little terrifying, actually. <laughs> yeah, but it was a great innovation, which once again, you got to give Jim credit for. You got to give the Corelco credit for. Everyone believed in technology, which had theoretically been tested, but never in that capacity. And the bet was huge. Imagine if morphing didn't work. I mean, that movie cost a lot of money. But again, the guys at Caralco, um and 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 Jim and everyone was willing to take the shot. That's a touch of the madness. That's where those movies are great. So when you say, what's wrong with the movie business? You need more dirty dancings. I don't mean dance movies. You need more Terminators. You need more movies that, that have something that no one's tried before. That's why Barbie did so well. It was so unusual, so new. That's what we need. Right. And uh, not only was it unusual and new, it was very well made. Greta Gerwig has done a beautiful job. Yeah, great. Just but really different. well. It's a different uh, movie. I, I, your book is very informative for a, for a producer because part of the issue with producing these days, you had a good section on uh, reaching out to people you don't know because I think part of the success of anything, I mean, the old cliche is it's it's who you know. 
But it's not only a question that it's an existential question, because unless you know these people, you're in a line from here to the Catalina Island. So I like the fact that you said never fear reaching out to people that you don't know and keep doing it as much as possible. Now, I, I, equate, I, I equate studios, streamers, broadcast networks to uh, castles in medieval Europe with moats <laughs> and uh, uh, alligator filled moats, high walls. Bowman on no. top. And- <laughs> Terrible way to think. Listen, the, the, the way I suggest you cultivate a touch of the madness is three things. Create, ask, play. And so we talked about creating your idea and holding on to it with a zeal. And the second thing is ask. Ask anybody, anything, anytime, as much as you want for whatever you want. Ask, 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 ask. So here's, the, here's a good example of that. Two years ago, we made a movie at Universal called Bobbleheads, an animated movie, you know, Bobbleheads characters with head bobble. And we wanted Cher to play Bobblehead Cher, so to use her likeness. Everyone said, there's no way. So we I called several times and Cher finally agreed to do it. And she was fantastic in the movie. And the movie was great. And when the movie came out, People Magazine said to Cher, you've never done an animated movie. Why did you pick this one? And she said, I never did an animated movie before because no one ever asked me before. But I did. So, but can you imagine if Cher, one of the most iconic women on earth, is sitting there and no one ever asked her, who in your life you're not calling because you think, oh, they won't take my call. They won't do it. They've been asked a hundred times. Maybe no one even asked them. So I would ask everyone watching or listening now this question. If you could call anyone in the world right now who's alive and ask them a question, who would you call and what would you ask? And most people don't know the answer to that question. And the reason they don't know the answer to that question is because they, they assume they can't do it. Like you, they assume there's a moat there in a castle. You know, in the old days of moats and castles, you couldn't call the king and say, hey, it's me, the guy outside with the catapult. You want to chat? <laughs> now you can't. And, and I, I know it's just the beginning. People say no to me all the time. They still say no to me. I still, we're trying to get the Pope, you know, the Pope Pope to do something. I, we've got these lovely past letters from Vatican City, but we still try and, we, you know, we you never give up. Call anybody, call. And it's so easy now. You know, when I started doing this, I started doing this in college. You had to actually call the person to go see them. Now you can call, you can DM, you can text, you can email. Just do it. What do you get to lose? So what if they say no? But who would you call? And I challenge everyone, if you're interested in embracing the madness, call somebody this week, tomorrow. Maybe it's not your number one. Try somebody. Just do it. Get used to it. Maybe it's, I don't know, your estranged uncle or something. But call somebody. Just, no, no, just try. I, I, I think it's great. I think that uh, there are multiple ways to reach. I find LinkedIn is a very good source for reaching right. out. Easy. It's easy. Call anybody. And it's such a great thing to do because there are people out there and you never know who you might get. And if they say no, so what? Well, you also say in your book that no is not never, never think no is no until, you know, you've tried no it nine times. Just the beginning. I don't even, I don't even hear no anymore. I get it all the time. You know, but so what? It's just the beginning. <laughs> now, one of the problems that producers face is the multiple levels of executives that have to say go to a project. It's not like there's Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, saying I want to do that, or Jack Warner over at Warner's. There always seems to be kind of a uh, a, a staff of people that you have to get through. Because um, you know, you like I'm a writer, and creating is my passion. But the whole aspect of selling is very Machiavellian. You you have to get to the right people. And then even to get a green light when they're they're considering 67 movies, how do you do that? Are you, you don't seem to be intimidated at all by that process. 
you know, it's not the most fun part of the job, but we're not the only ones who go through it. I mean, imagine again, working at some, I'm not sure if you want to design a new tire at General Motors, you got a lot of people to talk to too. It's just something you got to do. There's always something you got to do. I mean, so if you want to, you know, I, I, I was just, um, in Petra in Jordan scouting for a movie we're going to, I've shot there before. It's an amazing place and the people are great and it's incredible. It's hot. And so you have to think, okay, well, what are we going to do about this? Or how do we get the crew up this mountain? And so, you know, it's, it's just our lives as producers. So the challenge today is this, the challenge is now the executive. The There's always some challenge, no matter what you do, no matter what business you're in. And you have to just, I believe, embrace it with a touch of the madness. And sometimes, you know, my suggestion is when you're feeling, God, I can't get through to this guy. I can't get through that. The, the tendency of human, human beings is to go smaller. I say go bigger. When, when you, you know, when you're saying, listen, a studio, I want $12 million and I'm going to cast Frank and it's not working. Go back and ask for $50 million and you're going to cast whoever is a bigger star than Frank. One, one time I was having trouble selling an animated movie and we started our animation studio. And I thought if I can't sell one, then maybe I can sell 12. And that's what I did. I sold a slate. I couldn't sell one movie, but when I turned into a slate of movies, I sold them. So go bigger. Do, do, do the opposite of, of what sometimes the normal convention. Remember, you got to always think about that current of the river of life pulling you towards the middle and you got to swim against it or else you're going to wind up making whatever you make, movies included, in the middle. And no one wants middle of the road stuff. One of my favorite anecdotes in your book is the fact that you had to get Playboy involved in uh, one of your productions, and you actually went to a huge Halloween party at the Playboy Mansion in complete drag. Now, that is a bold step. <laughs> so we, we didn't have to get Playboy. We had this great project with Playboy that was going to happen. It was all before the pandemic and before Playboy changed. We were going to do a kind of a theme park ride in London called A Night of the Playboy Mansion using all this advanced VR technology. And I, and I sort of had Playboy, but not quite. And the guy who was going to direct it said um, it was their Halloween party, which was a great party in those days. It maybe isn't quite what people are thinking. It wasn't Purian at all. It was a beautiful party with great people and, and incredible food and a great haunted house. And he said, I dare you to go as a playmate. So I thought, you know what? Uh, and everyone, by the way, told me, it's the worst idea ever. Oh, my God, you're trying to do business with these people. What are you, crazy? I went all out. I mean, fishnet stockings, you know, fake boobs, the hair. And, and as an aside, by the way, one of the things that happens when you pursue these touch of the matters is you learn things you didn't expect to learn. I looked in the mirror when I was finally dressed, and it took forever, which I was shocked by because I thought I knew how women get dressed. And the first thing that occurred to me, I've always been kind of thin, said, my thighs look fat. And I went, wait, what? Where did that come from? It was like a bolt of light. I never said that in my life. And then you realize, certainly I did as a guy, oh my God, what women have to go through, we have no idea. And, and so that was incredibly instructive. But that aside, when I went to the party, thinking, oh, man, this is the dumbest idea I've ever had. It went great. People loved it. I was a hit. I was a hit. Not me. I mean, the costume. And you know who really loved it? The executives of Playboy who... who <laughs> Yeah, I, not that they love the way I looked with a wig and fake boobs, but they said they loved the idea that I went all out and we closed the deal. Well, I who would have thought? I mean, uh, I can. And by the way, I did look good in the fishnet stockings. I gotta say, <laughs> I'm kidding. I had that experience one at my at my daughter's uh, elementary school where they had uh, parent night where we all did our skits, and one of the parents decided that we were going to do the uh, Madonna song. Uh, I forget which one it was. And they had like the men's dress. I'm sorry? Like a virgin? 
I think yeah. it was like a virgin. And uh, anyway, it was. You guys is Madonna. I, well, we all had to wear the co the cone boobs, you know, the stretched out, <laughs> and and I, it was uh, my my had my wife went shopping for a bra, the largest bra she could find. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. It was pretty <laughs> funny. Uh, uh, I, I and everybody was paying a lot of attention to me and laughing. So you're, people, I think, like you said, people really enjoyed that you got into the spirit of the event and impressed everybody. Yeah, but I did it for, you know, for business. I I thought, right. well, you know, I, again, you can't, you can't, I don't think you can play it in the middle. Either they were going to love it or they were going to hate it. I think also one of the things that has, I've learned over the years, and I've studied Hollywood pretty intensely. Back in the, in the early days of Hollywood, they had promotional staffs at the studios, which came up with ideas on how to promote movies. Really crazy stuff. Russell Birdwell is well known for his work on Gone with the Wind. And those those staffs have been diminished over the years and people send emails and they send, you know, they send all sorts of things through the electronics. Nobody actually shows up at a live location and does something. And I think that there's going to be a return to promoting. One of my other theories also about the streamers, and we've been talking about lowering their budgets, they've got to do less programming. You don't need to have 100 movies a year. I mean, you 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 know, I always say HBO is the is the model because HBO only did 20 or 30 of that original programs every year. And they promoted the living hell out of them. Everybody on the planet. I worked at I worked at Showtime for 10 years. Invariably, if we had a hit with the critics, people thought it was an HBO movie. <laughs> you know, that's very interesting. You know. The real reason I wrote the book is because I started realizing that more than I've ever seen before, not only in the movie business, but in every business, people were scared to be their most true, passionate, creative selves. And I think the reason those great promo people you talk about are no longer there, because people are afraid, what if I do this and I make a mistake? Like like today, you know, if I were... This was the Playboy Mansion thing was right before the whole kind of um, political correct movement came in. But might someone say, oh, you can't do that. And, you know, all I was trying to do was have fun, go to a Halloween party and close the deal. But if people are afraid that their wild promotional idea is going to get them canceled or get them in trouble, they won't do it. And I agree. If everything becomes the same and every promotion is the same, you know, Instagram campaign it, it it that those great things just don't tend to happen anymore and i think we have to go back to that so i wrote the book to encourage people to just be their most creative selves and hope you know so what if it doesn't work i mean what if i didn't work as a as a you know what if i didn't get the playboy deal well at least i would have gone down swinging you know now you, you gotta try you are well known for embracing a video game that turned into a movie most video games into movie translations have not worked and there have been some huge bombs but you settled on mortal Kombat. what what attracted you to that video game franchise so when we made terminator 2 we worked with the company called midway who made the um, terminator 2 arcade games arcades were places we used to go and put coins into a machine and play video games and um and i got to know them really well and then that arcade game became a, a video game. We were, Terminator 2 was the first movie to ever, ever let a video game company shoot on the set so they could use the same sets as the video game. And I stayed friendly with the company and they called me one day and like just kidding around and said, you know, we're testing a game here in Chicago that looks like it's going to beat your record because the T2 arcade game was the number one arcade game ever. And I happened to be going to Chicago and I went to see them and I said, I got to play this game. I played the game in the chairman's office 
And I played it for 10 minutes and I turned to him and I said, this is Star Wars Me Center the Dragon. And if you give me the rights to this, I guarantee you I will produce in every medium in the world, movies, TV, animation, you name it. And he said, eh, piece of crap video game. <laughs> it took me, it took me months to convince him to do it. And and but no one, no, everyone told me again I was crazy because no video game to movie adaption had worked in that point. And then in still thinking about it, I was negotiating all summer and you know the deal kept getting more challenging. I was wandering around a, a, a arcade in Westwood and an 11 year old kid slapped a quarter down on the Mortal Kombat game and looked up at me and said, I challenge you to Mortal Kombat. And then the kid beat the hell out of me and he was just great at it. And, you know, Mortal Kombat, if you don't know, when you win, it makes you feel great. Sub-Zero wins, you lose. And the kid left feeling, you know, 10 feet tall. He beat an adult. And I thought that game made that kid feel that way. I'm doing it. And I just never gave up. And we did it. And it, Mortal Kombat became the first hit movie from a video game. And now I think we're on our like our something like our 20th Mortal Kombat production 20 something years later. Um, but you know what? Again, I never thought I was making a movie from a video game. I thought I was making a movie from the story or the essence that became that video game. That's the slight difference. When you create your great idea, you have to really understand the essence of that idea. Why did Mortal Kombat work? Because it made that kid feel empowered. So I, I always thought the real secret of Mortal Kombat was empowerment. And that's what I always tried to infuse into my productions. Yes, it's great looking and the fighting is great and we do all that stuff. But underneath it, I wanted everyone to feel like that kid when he played that game, when they watch our movies, that if I study hard and do anything, I can do anything. Well, that's another thing, you, a good point you make in your book that you should never forget how to satisfy your audience. Because yep. sometimes you make a decision and you're not thinking about the audience. That's a little problem I have with a lot of filmmakers today. And again, I, I'm sounding a little a little cliched, but I, I find that some movies are not what I call entertainment. They can be very good movies and they make, make uh, bold statements. But if I'm going to sit in a movie theater for two hours or in front of my TV for two hours, I'm kind of going there for escape. I'm kind of an escape guy. And sometimes I just feel like I'm being pummeled. And uh, I, I think that the people who are successful, like, for instance, Steven Spielberg, I think, has never forgotten that he was once a kid in the theater watching The Greatest Show on Earth. And he makes movies to entertain an audience as much as possible, not always successfully, but most of the time. And I think that uh, you seem to have embraced that, especially at Vestron, because you were making popcorn pictures. We, you know, you, you you work for your audience. I give a speech at the beginning of every one of my movies. You don't work for me. You don't work for the director. You don't work for the studio. You work for the audience. And sometimes the audience is different. Sometimes it's an escapist audience. Sometimes it's a French art film audience, but you got to know. And again, here's a good example. So on, on Mortal Kombat, early in the first development, we had a bunch of kids in from some local grammar school. We were doing someone a favor to see how we develop characters. And there's a character in Mortal Kombat called Kano who kind of had a... a uh, an eye like a metallic eye patch with an led light kind of like this terminator behind me and that's what the terminator looked like in one scene and i thought you know that'll be a little boring for me i've done this before i'll change kano and when the kids came in they saw the character designs of all our other characters goro sub-zero scorpion i love it i love it and then one kid saw the new kano without the eye patch and he said who's that and i said well, that's kano and the kid said but kano has a metallic eye and I said, well, you know, I just did this movie called T2 and I thought it'd be a little boring. And so I decided to change. And the kids started huffing and puffing. And he said, Kano has a metallic eye. And I said, yeah, but don't you think it looks a little like the turn? And the kids started having a panic attack. And all of a sudden I realized, you know what the problem with 
the way I was thinking, because what I just said in the last three sentences, I kept saying, I, it'd be boring for me. I've done it. I, I, it wouldn't be as creative for me. That kid wants Kano to have a, an eye patch. That's what I'm making the movie for. I took the thing down. I ripped it up. Kano has a metallic eye patch and has been a good character in Mortal Kombat ever since. That's what the audience tells you. You've got to listen to your audience. The thing I hate the most when filmmakers say is, well, I like blue, so I'm doing blue because it just, no, no. If you like blue as the custodian of where your audience likes, fantastic. But if you like blue because you like blue, you know what? Become a painter and you can paint what you want and one person can see it and you'll be fine. But no, I you've got to work for the audience. And I think that's a great challenge. I think that's fun. I mean, you don't, you know, to, to make your movie just as like a personal shopping experience, I don't think it's so fun. Having worked on so many different projects, some that went forward, some that didn't, is there ever a time where you have to say to yourself, I can't make this anymore. It's just too much. Do you have those moments or do you just... You went to fold them, in other words? <laughs> I'm sorry? You know, went to like went to hold your cards and went to fold them. I'm, I'm not a good folder. I, I, I tend to hold on with a, a zeal and I probably hold on a little too much. But, but sometimes it, it, it's just... Yeah, it's, sometimes you just have to say, listen, no one bats a thousand. And if this movie goes forward, it, it's it's going to be a disaster. We we had that once, I won't say who, at Vestron, where I got a phone call from an agent saying, I, I won't, I'll spare the details, but why is your director and issuing all these crazy statements in pre-production to the cast? I'm like, what are you talking about? And the director really was having some sort of a psychological break. And we just had to, shut down the movie i mean it was just no one's fault but sometimes you just got to do that sure, um sure. it doesn't happen a lot but you know and every we're, we have a pretty good ratio of development projects to projects get produced but you know they got to be right and and sometimes that's a hard thing because sometimes you think well i could get this made tomorrow if i compromise but then the movie will suck and you got to hold on and that's tough you got cash flow you got all these things but you know you gotta believe in your projects and only walk away if you've done everything you can and think, you know what, even if I get this made, it's not going to work. Or, or, or maybe the world changes. When we were at, um, at Vestron, we had, you know, we were co-financing studio movies and we co-financed the movie that Fox made called Space Camp, which was going to be the movie of the summer. But when it was finished, but be right before, um, that was before the Challenger exploded. Oh. And so now these people, it's a terrible story. They have, I mean, for obviously because the Challenger exploded, but from Fox's point of view, now this fun movie about what did they do? And I, I actually, and they had this special screening late at night, and I actually stepped up and I bought the movie for a lot of money. And it, it you know, maybe made a teeny bit of money, but you just never know. And so they had already made the movie, so what do we do? But let's say it happened a little earlier. So sometimes you got to fold them, but it's not, I don't fold them because people tell me I'm crazy. I don't fold them because people tell me it's not a good idea. I only do it if you just realize something has just changed in the world and now this is no longer a good idea. If it's only if I think it's not a good idea. Yeah. Well, we have been having a really fun conversation with Larry Kazanoff. Uh, the title of his book, just so everybody knows about this book, is if you're interested in show business and surviving in show business and getting a little bit of good information, read A Touch of Madness, How to Be More Innovative. A Touch of the Madness. A Touch of the Madness. I'm sorry, A Touch of the madness be <laughs> more innovative in work and life by being a little crazy uh this has been great larry i i wish you a lot of luck with the book um and it, it seems like you seemed as power uh, as 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 gung-ho and as excited about the film business as you've ever been and that's inspiring to all yeah. of us 
I, I think that we're in a world of opportunity. I think there's so much opportunity in the film business right now. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. We always enjoy presenting people with interesting points of view, and we certainly have one here in Larry Kazanoff. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Larry.